Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Wednesday afternoon, almost. And I'm going to do the Haftorah now. Try to do the Haftorah in Parshas Bahar. Uh, glad to say we have two sponsors for today. One, a half and a half. One is um, Steve Gross. Just, we just, a new friend, you say, from Boynton Beach and the Boca Raton area. And uh, very grateful, Steve. And the other one is uh, Ed Miller, who the Miller family um, uh, know very well. And they're doing for a relative, I think Lisa Shankman is the name, who passed away the other day. Um, tragically after an illness, succumbed to an illness, leaving behind a family. I hope that the Nisham will have an Aliyah, as they say. I'm sorry to hear about that. So, and the Dvar Torah we do today will be in her memory. Uh, <clears throat> let us uh, take a look uh, right now. I have an appointment in a little while at uh, Jeremiah 32, because that's <clears throat> the Torah today. And as I complain about all the time, the problem with the Torah is they only give you a little fragment. You, unless you know the story, you see the whole thing, you do, you just don't get an idea. <clears throat> but the nature of the Haftorah, as I've said over and over again, is they on purpose, this is a rabbinic culture, that they only emphasize the positive, usually. You know, they want to leave out the the uh, the negative, uh, depressing stuff, even though to us, who are interested in the whole story, or at least to me, you have to see the whole context, uh, including the negativity. Now, this is from Yermio, Jeremiah. As you all know, Yermio lives in time, destruction for his temple. <clears throat> and our Haftorah is, uh, is uh, chapter 32. I used the Geisha stuff. Yermio, starting from Pasuk Vav, from 6. But there's a, uh, what shall I say, an introduction to it, which is very important to understand the historical context. And that is that this is taking place one minute before 12. The Haino. Look at the beginning. Read the sixth Sukkim beforehand, and you see the whole story. Because Jeremiah's in a jail, and somebody comes to one to sell him a piece of real estate. It's a little bit strange. The Millers, Mrs. Miller, Iris Millers of the real estate. Here you might have a parsha about the real estate. Of course, today's parsha Bahar is about real estate. Seriously, you know how you buy and sell and things, various aspects of the real estate. Seriously, this is the um, the parsha and the haftorah for the real estate people. But look at this. Here's a, a story that happened. In the 10th year of Tzedekiah, well, guess what? The guy was only here for 10 years. And it was the last year of his reign. Uh, such such a year, King Nebuchadnezzar. So what's the story? We're in the very end of the Bayes Rishon. More accurately, we're at the very end of the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom of Israel went down the tubes. There was so and so many decades before that. The kingdom of Judah is now going down the tubes from the same stupidity. <coughs> right? I mean, you can run a state with wise statesmanship, or you can rely on Hashem. If it's wise statesmanship, that's one thing. Um, the kingdom of Judah never had wise statesmen. They always picked the wrong course. It was the Middle East, constant wars. And you want to know something? It's very similar to what's going on. Not exactly, but somewhat similar to the war now raging in Russia and the Ukraine. 
and half the people are saying side with Ukraine, same side with Russia, or you know, kiss up to this one. And poor Israel, a little country which is dependent on so many others, they don't know what to do. They can't tick off Russia. On the other hand, they don't want to get America angry at them. So what do you do? In that case, you need either very wise statesmanship or see out to the Shmaya. You understand? If a person is not a very wise statesman to steer the ship of state through the stormy seas, then you have to pray to God. <laughs> you get it? Uh, and the kingdom of Judah did neither. They had dumb statesmen. Uh, the, 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 at that particular, without boring you with all the details, at that particular time, the power struggle between the two powerful states in the Middle East was between the north and the south, between Babylonia on one hand and Egypt on the other. And the Israelis, the Judah, always picked Egypt, which nearby was extremely dumb. The prophets of Israel always warned about it. I know, I've spoken about this in the past. It's a big theme in the book of the prophets. Don't rely on Egypt. They'll always stick you in the back. They'll always screw you. You understand? Don't ally with Egypt. But nevertheless, they did. Okay? <clears throat> nevertheless, they did. And, of course, Egypt couldn't protect them against Babylon. And Egypt was really playing them. But the way the Egyptians did it <clears throat> was by bribing the nobles of Judah and, uh, as they say, playing the nobles of Judah, manipulating them. Uh, I read the other day in um, Haaretz, maybe, something like that. Somebody came out of the book. I didn't read it yet. With a lot of the inside information, of maybe it was the Mossad or Israeli uh, uh, foreign ministry, something like that, from the early days of the state, long ago. It was very interesting, the book review I read. And one of the things they mentioned over there is, how come uh, when Israel became a state, all the Muslim countries wouldn't have anything to do with her? With two big exceptions, Turkey and Iran. I'm wondering myself, how come Turkey and Iran, even though they're not Arab, but nevertheless, why would they agree to a Jewish state and recognize it, have ambassadors and all the rest of it? The answer is, Israel bribed them. They paid off the, the prime minister or whoever it is. Simple as that. They bribed them. So that's what the Egyptians used to do to the nobles of Judah. And that way, the nobles of Judah, who were in the king's council and all that, the king at that time, Sikiel, being a very weak character, he wasn't a bad guy, but he was a weak guy, went along, and they always, therefore, voted to join Egypt, and Egypt left them in the lurch, like in the Peanuts uh, uh, cartoon, you know, with the kick in the football. And uh, as a result, the Jews went down. So, Yirmiyahu is a Novi, and he is speaking on behalf of God, and God sees through all the bull. And he says, don't side with Egypt. And anyway, first of all, you are dumb. So don't rely on your statesmanship. Number two, don't rely on Hashem because you're, you're wicked. As we'll see in a minute. Uh, you don't deserve God's help. That is not a message they wanted to hear. They said, if you know anything about the story of Yemiyoho, the nobles wanted to kill him. Uh, the king, who was a weak character, the best he could do was arrest Yemiyoho for his own sake and put him in what we would call today <coughs> uh, solitary confinement. Which I want to tell you something. We living nowadays can easily understand this. <coughs> if Chas Chalila, anybody listening to this, uh, ended up in jail, federal, state, whatever, let's just say it happened. Uh, you know what goes on over there. The best thing the warden can do for you is put you in solitary confinement. So you're physically away from everybody else. In other words, I'm the warden. I'm putting you in solitary confinement because you're Orthodox Jew. That way, no, no, literally, people lay their hands off you, literally. So, as 
considered a punishment in some contexts, here would be a, a, a positive thing. So that's what happened. The king threw him in Chatzar Matorah in a certain um, quarter, like a barracks. And uh, that's where Yermiel was alone to protect him from being killed. And that's when this prophecy takes place and the whole story takes place. So imagine a guy who's a Navi, very controversial. He's in a certain type of a jail or a solitary confinement cell. And this is a wonderful story. And his cousin or uncle, whatever, shows up and says, I want to do a real estate deal with you. It's so Jewish. <laughs> okay? And it's one minute before 12. They're rearranging the, the deck chairs of the Titanic, or so it seems. But God says, not. So it says that it was in this year, the siege of Jerusalem was on, because, it, like I said before, it's a, it was just before Tisha B'av. So the siege was on. And Jeremiah was in the jail, I told you about, the barracks. That the king put him in that jail. Really, I say again, for his own good. But um, the official reason that he was, the official reason that he he did it was um, because Jeremiah was a traitor. Uh, why are you always predicting and prophesying that the enemy is going to capture the city and that I'm going to be killed? Right? And that Sikyo, meaning me, myself, and I, the king, uh, will be delivered over um, to the king of Babylonia who will torture him. Okay? And Bavol Yolich uh, will take you as a prisoner, and so forth and so on. So this is the Zitzin Laban, as they call it, that the prophet Jeremiah is in a jail because he's shooting his mouth off. He can't help it. He's not shooting his mouth off. He's a Navi. Hashem said to tell, say something. you got to say it. I, it's unpopular. This is the story of Jeremiah. Look at the first chapter. He said, I don't want to be a prophet. And then God said, I don't care what you want. But Terim, I had you designed as a Navi when you were in mother's stomach. Tough luck. You know what I'm saying? So Yermia's got to do what he's got to do. The only thing is Hashem said you won't be hurt physically. And so he's in jail, and this and the other. He never is actually physically abused, as far as we can see. But he's living in a terrible situation. And God tells Jeremiah in the jail, and now comes our Haftorah, that guess what? Your uncle's coming to you, Hanamba ben Shalom, and he wants to do a real estate deal. Now, Yermio, as you know from the very beginning, that Yermio was a Kohen. A Kohen doesn't own land. Not exactly true. The Kohanim had certain pieces of land all throughout the, the cities of the Kohanim, as they called. It's in the Chumash, right? Umado, Sem, Chutz, you know, in this week's parsha, next week's parsha, uh, their, their territories belonged, small territories here and there belonged to Kohanim. One was Anatot, as they called today. I told you, my friend Sam Finkel took me there, uh, right near Yushalayim. It's a deep canyon and all the rest of it. It's a, it's a hangout place. It's probably going to be a scene tomorrow in Lag Bomber because the Arabs like to picnic there, and the Jews like to picnic there. So anyway, whatever the case is, this guy had a piece of land. Yermio was descended from them. And the guy says, we're dealing with mishpacha stuff, and a piece of land has become available. And there's a, you know, the closest relative has first dibs, and you're the closest relative. Okay? And sure enough, uh, God said this is going to happen, and you know, not long after that, the guy showed up. He was a, like a, a, a cousin. And he says, 
And he says, you buy the land. Well, and Yermio said like this, this is no coincidence. Hashem told me five minutes ago, a guy's going to come and tell me to buy land. And five minutes later, the guy shows up and tells you to buy land. So I did it. And he, and he goes through a description of how one purchases land, which is used very heavily in the Gemara. This is a, a set of psukim that, although they're taken out of context, the Yeshiva guys know because they learn Kedusha and some other places where they talk about how you acquire real estate. Keser Shtar Chazaka said, how you do Shtar, and they discuss this in the context of Gitin. And so what's necessary for Shtar? So these are the technical halachic psukim. He he does the whole um what's the right word legal process. He wrote it out. He had it signed. He got the witnesses. I weighed out the money. Uh, you know, so it's it's almost funny. Here's a guy who's a political prisoner because there wasn't jail for regular punishment. I, I said that many times. Jail was for political prisoners. So he's in a certain type of VIP jail situation in solitary confinement. And this guy shows up with um, pen and paper and with a moznayim to weigh out the silver. It's not as he's ready to do a deal. And basically, um, you have to understand, the whole country was occupied by the enemy. Jerusalem is the only fortress still holding out. So he's selling, how should I put it? He's selling land, and that's the whole point of the parsha that you'll never be able to take possession of because the guy have it. Uh, but I did it. It's not to say for Hamakna, it's to say for Hamikna. This is where you get that famous commentary on the Gemara from, from the Shlo, from the Hafla. I say for Hamikna, it's a chasm mitzvah. All the technical stuff over there. Really, this is like for Chosha Mishra. But I say for Hamikna. And I did all the, so he describes, you know, having a, how to do the, the ceremony. And he, and he purchases the land. All right? He purchases the land. And not only that, he says, put it away so it'll remain. And so on and so forth. Put it away in a jar so it'll be there when the Jews return 70 years now or whenever. But then, I mean, I'm saying that because I know the story. He's told to do this, but then he asks God, what's going on over here? This is the Haftarah today. I know you're all powerful and you know it. And you're very powerful. Right? Ah, I think I did this last year. This is, fits in very much. <clears throat> it was what I did in the Tafila podcast yesterday from that story from the Oppenheims in North Carolina. Remember I said that people have to speak um, honestly to God. And if you have a criticism or something like that, you, you say it, don't flatter. Because flattery is insincere and the worst thing, the worst thing is insincerity when you're speaking to God. And they said the Anshay Asigdol restored Hayala Godal Agibar Vanura. Because it used to be they just left that Godal or, or Gibra Nura. This Parsha today. I forgot about that. It's where you find this. In other words, if you go to Yermiyahu, who Lamed Bay's Pasuk Pasuk Yilches. Right? Jeremiah 32 18. It says, Ose, this is Yermio talking to Hashem. And he's saying, I know you're all powerful. And you punish the sins of the parents on the children. Notice we're now the generation that's paying for all that has been there until now. 
So you notice he left out no row. That's my point. Anyway, the point's like this. You're all powerful. You're all the rest of it. And um, and now, uh, it's true. Vayavovi Yeshua. So, for lo I know they went off the derech. Vatakri some Razos. And you've now proclaimed that all this misfortune is going to happen. We're about to lose the base of Migdash. We're about to suffer Tishabab. This is going to be the massacre by Nebuzaradan. It's going to be terrible times. The survivors are going to a, a Batan death march till they get to Babylonia. And he's saying to Hashem, I see the siege engines of the enemy are getting closer. There's all this sword, famine, and, and, and pestilence. And, you know, if you read the book of, uh, what do you call it? Echo. You see, he sees from his window the mass starvation of people dying like the worst of ghetto pictures. Right? So I don't get it. You, God, commanded me to carry out this, this deed, this bill of sale, in which I purchased a piece of land. The city's about to go down to the, to the enemy. So why did you do that? And Hashem said, like this, don't talk to me like that. You think it's beyond me? I know what I'm doing. You're a Navi. Wait a minute. What's shot a Navi? A Navi sees the future. No, he doesn't. A Navi sees what Hashem tells him about the future. You get it? Prophecy doesn't mean automatically you know the future. Prophecy means you get a message from upstairs. It may have a vision of the future. It may not. So, and even if it does, I may show you what's happening in 100 years from now. I'm not showing what's happening in 500 years from now, but I, God, see everything. Okay? So, let's get this straight. And now it goes to whole business. Lochin um, Hashem. The guy will capture the city. They'll burn it down. They'll destroy the houses because of all the Avodah art that they did. Okay? Now, I'm going past the Haftorah uh, today. Okay? I'm going past the Haftorah today. Because our Haftorah simply ends, I mean, many poly called over. You think, I don't know what's going to happen, God says? But now comes the good stuff. When I say the good stuff, I mean the bad stuff. Meaning the most important part of the Haftorah. So all I'm telling you today is, if you're listening to this, if you want to know what's happening in Torah, which is a very important Torah, by the way, you got to simply not be satisfied with looking at the Haftorah in, the, in your Chumash. But rather, you have to get a book of Yermio. The article has Jeremiah. Anybody does. And you got to look at chapter 32. you got to read through it from beginning to end. Because Hashem goes on to say, after the Haftorah is over, He says, He knows everybody out of Kazdim. The enemy is going to capture it. They're going to destroy stuff. They're going to kill people. Ashi Kitru, Gabasan Labao. Because on every roof they were doing Avodazar for Baal. Kalibane Israel, Osarab, Bein Hashem, they did all these terrible Avodazar. Kial Api Achamosi Oyazos. This city's been a pain in the neck. Okay? This has been Al Api Achamosi. I've been full of anger with this city from the day they built it till today. Right? So notice basically Yushalayim been bad from A to Z, which is interesting. I can only surmise by that. Then he means from the time of King Solomon, they already have Solomon built churches there. That's the only sense it makes to me, unless it's rhetorical. All the elites, like we would say today, the Yeshiva guys, the Rosh Hashivas, the Kohanim, the Nevi'im, all the rest have been bad. They turned away from me, and I tried to give Musar, Musar. And look what they did. See, we don't want to read this in the Haftarah. 
Is it too depressing? They put idols all through the base of Megdush. And they did human sacrifices. They built Bomas Baal, these high places for the Baal. Asher begay ben him in the valley ben Hinnom. That's where, that's the place in Jerusalem where they did the human sacrifice. Lahavir es b'nei menosim lamolach to do the molach business where you burn the children. Ashelot sivizon alzavot, which is not what I commanded. They claim that God wants it, but I don't want it. That's a geisha thing, and therefore, you know, I've got no time for this. So um, let me tell you something. If you go to the Middle East, you'll find they dig up archaeological sites. Thank God they haven't found one in Jerusalem yet. But maybe they will. In which they find thousands of skulls of babies, of little children. You know what I said? I remember, forget somewhere, there was 20,000, I think in Lebanon and Phoenicia, those kind of places, if I remember correctly, or Carthage, where the killing of children was like a big deal. And Yushalayim had this. Now I say, I hope they never find all the skulls. But that's Hashem said, I, I, I've had it up to here. Halapi Bachamasi. But, but, but. I also want to say this, Hashem says, but your your real estate will be worth money one day. Okay? So, uh, let me put it this way. Yermi, I think it says paid a seven shkolim or something like that, which isn't a lot of money. Um, it's like we'd say today, in the year 2022, that piece of prime real estate in Rechavia is worth a lot of money, baby. <laughs> That's Hashem said, I did you a favor. You get it? Because one day, things will be different. Okay? Buy all the land you can get all over Israel. You and I know what these places are because these are regions in Israel today. The Shvela and the Negev and so forth. Because guess what? Because they will come back. Okay? So basically, what he's saying is that the same way. Kasher Hevesis, someone says, call a rug, maybe his chem is called Toba, So, the reason I told you, the prophet Jeremiah, to do this real estate deal was to demonstrate in a way that speaks to Jews that uh, don't think the value of the real estate's down. Aye, the enemy's about to destroy everything, all your land to be worth nothing. And it may be, this is what I think personally, it may be that many. Jews would say like this, I'll sell I'll sell out for a song. Uh, better get 10 bucks for my house than zero. And maybe they'll sell it to Goyim. Um, there are many people in the Babylonian army we know. They were from Edom and Ammon and uh, Canaanim. All this other junk. They're mentioned elsewhere in Yermio. Uh, and they probably came to the city, I think. And they didn't kill everybody right away. <clears throat> Let me make this point, then I have to go. They didn't kill everybody right away. Um, what they did was, um, you know, let me let me finish this up in, in a minute. Hi, sorry about the interruption. Something very important came up. Uh, I think what I was saying was as follows. If uh, you're Miguel, I'm talking about going through a real estate deal and buying land, even though it looks like the land is, is useless, <coughs> has no value. I'll tell you what I'm, what I'm thinking. Um, as we all know, the prophet Jeremiah lived at the time of the Korban Bais Risha. That was by Bavel, as opposed to the second base of which was by Rome. Okay, everybody knows that. But not only is it two different occasions, but the nature of the fall of each temple was different. When it comes to the Romans, the Bayashani, it was a physical main force fight 
between the Romans on one side and Jews on the other, like the Alamo. I mean, they fought every inch. To be technical, very early on, the Romans broke into one part of the city of Jerusalem, and later, not too long later, Thomas says the second part of Jerusalem, and during what we call the three weeks, they were actually fighting hand-to-hand on the Harabites and the Temple Mount. I think everybody knows that the Kotel is the you know, around the higher bias, not from the base of proper. Uh, and finally, without going through all the details, in hand-to-hand fighting, the Romans busted into the base of Migdash on the day we call Tisha B'Av, uh, and destroyed everything and so forth and so on. And it, the Jewish blood flowed everywhere because it was literally hand-to-hand fighting, and the Romans prevailed, and they wiped us out. <laughs> okay. Now, Bias Rishon was different. Many people don't realize it, but you have to take a look at a book called the Tanakh, in which case the Book of Malachim and Yermiel and also the Yaman. They describe a different scenario, especially the Book of Malachim, going by heart here, where it says that the city was besieged, and as they said before, our Haftorah today takes place during the siege. I might say during the final stages of the siege. So Yermiyahu is inside the city, but he's in a jail inside the city. Uh, eventually, on the day you and I call it Shavasa uh, the, the the food ran out, and the soldiers were too hungry to continue fighting, and they fled the city. No, it's the Jewish garrison fled the city. So it's not like the Babylonians busted in, although they do talk about a battering ram, but they didn't bust into the city. But instead, the city surrendered because the king and his soldiers ran away and they had their own fate. I won't go into that. So the city fell with a white flag of surrender on the day you and I called Shabbos and Thomas. Some say the ninth, but let's say Shabbos and Thomas. And then was what we called the three weeks. Because as you know and I know, by Rishon as well as by Shani was, was Tisha both. That's three weeks later. So Bishlam of the Romans, during the three weeks, they were mamish hand-to-hand fighting on the Harabais. As opposed to, when the Babylonian thing happened, time of our Haftorah, the city surrendered with a white flag. And then, they waited for three weeks to find out from King Nebuchadnezzar, who wasn't there. He was upstairs in, in Syria. What he wanted done with the city. And eventually, he sent back his general Nebuchadnezzar, who had not been at the siege, uh, with orders to destroy everything. I think we know that. Okay? So that means for about 21 days or so, the city was held by enemy armies, Babylonian army, their allies, until the final fate and disposition was decided. For example, 10 years earlier, the city had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar, <coughs> what they call Gosio Yachan. Again, they threw a boy flag, as it happens, Nebuchadnezzar did not wipe out the city. He gave them another chance. He replaced <coughs> King Yochan, who was young, with Sikio, etc. So nobody knew this time what exactly is going to be the final disposition on the part of Nebuchadnezzar until orders came to destroy the city. <coughs> Shine. So now, here's where I'm coming from. So suppose you were Jewish and living in Yerushalayim during those terrible three weeks. I'll bet, I don't know this, but I imagine... The enemy soldiers, I mean specifically the ones who live in the Middle East, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites, 
and whatever other junk you had over there. The Philistines probably went to the Jewish people who were scared out of their mind. Nobody knew at that time, during those three weeks, what will be the final fate. Maybe they'll be let off again. Maybe they won't. And so if I was, let's say, for example, an Edomite soldier or whatever, I would go to somebody with slime who has a big mansion. I'll say, yes, look here, buddy. You know, sell me this place for a song for 10 bucks or $100, even though it's worth a million. And, you know, it's an interesting market. Uh, the guy might say, well, 10 bucks, no. But, you know, the guy said, sell it to me for half its price. Maybe I would. Uh, maybe I would. Because no one knew what the final chances were going to be when they heard their final fate. Nobody knew at that time that the house would be burned down and the land would be uh, desolate. And so you might find a lot of clever and smart enemy soldiers creating their own real estate market and hitting on the Jews to say, sell us uh, your land with a free bill of sale. They'll stand up in court. And that way... The, the actual kark of Yushalayim would be now in the hands of foreigners. Okay? Uh, you could totally hear somebody would do that. At least I can. Comes along God five minutes before Tisha B'av, That's what we're dealing with over here. Five minutes before to surrender the city. And as the Pusik says at the beginning of Perik, and sells to Yermiyahu, I want you to be a Muslim hostile and establish a precedent that you're buying land, you're not selling it. It's a Jewish land, it's not sold to going. Because then it becomes alienated and the Jews can't get their hands on it. They have a whole big mess. Rather, you should understand that whatever punishment is coming from Hashem, it's there for a religious reason. But one day the Jews will be restored and anybody who sold this land, especially in some kind of formal legal business, won't be able to come back to it. Because the guy will say like this, look, I bought it fair and square. You know, the house was a million. Everybody else wanted to offer him 10 cents. I settled with him for 750 which was a fair price considering the circumstances. He signed it, you know, like Yermio says, the whole guns of business. And therefore the land is mine. The house is mine. And what did you be able to say? This would have been a national catastrophe on many levels. 70, 80 years later, come back in the time through Babel later as Nehemiah, as it is, they had a lot of problem junk from the guy. It would be magnified. Consequently, Yermio, sort of publicly, even though he's in jail, but he does in a formal ceremony, so the word gets out, says, I'm buying land. And the reason I'm buying land is because I know this is all temporary. I don't know if it's seven minutes, seven years, 70 years, whatever. I know it's all temporary. Because when the period of punishment is over, we're going to be restored. And I want to have my family, my children, my descendants, have clear title to that piece of land in Anasos. And when the word spreads around to the other Jews, hopefully they'll do the same thing and they will refrain from selling it to their captors. That's what I think. I know this kind of thing happened, and so do you, in the Holocaust. Where, in a lot of cases... Jews in Eastern Europe and these other places, Germany. You know, the Gaisha neighbors came to us and said, listen, you got to get out of here anyway. And for all you know, you might be dead soon. Or you run away, you're never going to come back here. Sell me your farm, sell me your land. I bet you there are people listening to this podcast where their parents or grandparents or whatever have land and houses and whatever back in the old country 
which under uh, these kind of circumstances, they were forced to unload back in the Hitler era. And now, I'm not saying they wanted the land back, but if they do want the land back or something like this, you have a whole mess because it was sold. And you have, I guess you have to prove to the court in each and every case, you know what I mean, that was sold under duress or I don't know what. And probably these courts, like the Swiss, are notorious for that. Uh, these courts probably won't side with you. And so all this was because you sold the land, which I understand. I'm mean, not judging anybody. I'm just saying the circumstances were terrible and people did what they did. But you see from our Parsha, it's like sending out a message. Is don't rush to get rid of your land or your possessions. Because the same God that is punishing can make a restoration. Uh, it reminds you a little bit of uh, the Parsha Bahar. Because he talks about, you know, uh, make sure and next week's Parsha are... You may lose the land because you're not doing Shemitah properly, but later on when you come back, you'll make sure you do the Shemitah properly or the land will be resting to make up for the Shemitahs. Uh, the entire theme, as I mentioned yesterday, I think in the in my talk on the Parsha, as the, uh, the Barbanel, I guess, is that who it was? Uh, talks, um, in Dibbet Ezra, says that, you know, there are certain sins that cause the land to spit you out. Okay, but when the land does spit you out, don't give up your claim to the land. Because once you're spit out, what do you do then? The answer is you start working your way back. <laughs> what happens if a person has a business and then they have a terrible reverse in the stock market and they lose their pants, they lose everything? Which is terrible. I don't wish that anybody. I'm just saying, what happened if they lose like 1929? Let's say they lose everything. What do you do at that point? Number one, you can shoot yourself. Okay, that's one way. But if you don't do that, what do you do? You guys got to start again. What happens to Claudius Yisrael when they're kicked out of Israel? As unfortunately has happened. As soon as it's over, you say, okay, we got to pick ourselves up best we can and start working our way back to Israel. There's no other choice. There's no other choice. So I think in this way, it fits in kind of interestingly into the Parshas Bahar. Anyway, that's why this is a very striking and dramatic Haftarah, even though in the trunc truncated way, uh, that, you know, the Parshas, the, the Haftors are presented to us, not within the larger context, as I just tried to do. It's hard to see, you know, the the, the real meaning of it. But anyway, there you have it. So, um, once again, I want to thank our sponsor, Steve, down there in Florida. Thanks very much. And the Miller family, I'm sorry about the loss in the family. Uh, I hope this will be a, a tribute to the memory of the Nifteris. And with that, I wish you all a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.